This month, the Casey Foundation released its 2017 Kids Count Data Book, an annual ranking of states on child well-being. The data book is an important resource for lawmakers and child advocates who depend on reliable data to advance sound policies that benefit children and families. So who does the Casey Foundation rely on to analyze the data book's data? It's the Population Reference Bureau. Therefore, I'm delighted to welcome Linda Jacobson, the Vice President of U.S. Programs at PRB, to discuss the state of data on kids and families today. Linda is a demographer with more than 30 years of experience analyzing population trends and their implications. Her research is focused on family and household demography, as well as poverty and inequality. Welcome, Linda. We're delighted to have you. Thank you, Lisa. I'm very happy to be with you today. Great. So with PRB as partner, Kids Count uses data to tell the story about child well-being in the United States. Can you tell me where your information comes from? Well, we're fortunate, Lisa, in the United States to have comprehensive data on a wide variety of child and family well-being indicators from a number of very important government data sources. Um, these include the American Community Survey, um, data from the National Center for Education Statistics, vital statistics data from the National Center for Health Statistics, and data from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. But even though we have wonderful data sources, and, and they are where we get the 16 indicators that are currently included um, in the Kids Count um, data book and in the index, there are still some additional data um, that we need in order to fully understand or assess children's well-being today. So what are the data gaps when it comes to understanding where kids are today and what they need? One of the gaps that we have is good data on juvenile justice. So, for example, the best estimate of the number of children and teens who are arrested comes from something known as the FBI Uniform Crime Report. But these data are submitted voluntarily, so they're not available for all states or jurisdictions. And also importantly, they're often not provided separately by race and ethnicity, which is very important. And similarly, there are no sources of data that provide estimates of the number of children who've ever been incarcerated or committed or detained. One other area I would mention um, that I think is an important data gap is data on homelessness for children. The data we do have is limited, and sometimes it's not a very high quality. And we know there's been an increase in homeless families with children, and this was especially true um, during the Great Recession a few years ago. But we don't have complete or comparable data across all states. So right now, State education agencies or local education agencies are required to submit information on children who are homeless and who are enrolled in schools. And schools are the only institution legally responsible for identifying and serving children who are experiencing homelessness. But this school-based approach is a problem because it can, for example, miss homeless children who are younger than school age, right? So it's not counting children who are not in school. It also can miss older age homeless children um, who've dropped out of school as teens. 
Um, in some cases, the counts may not be accurate because it might double count students if they enroll in more than one school district in a year. And so oftentimes homeless families will move between districts and may get temporary housing in one district versus another. So that may impact the accuracy of the counts. Um, and then, of course, you know, having accurate data requires homeless children to be accurately identified by school personnel, which may not happen um, in all cases. And then I guess one other area I would mention that I think is, is very important is understanding the well-being of children in what we usually refer to as mixed status families. So these are families in which one or more parents are undocumented, but the child, him or herself, has actually been born in the United States and, and so is a citizen. But most data sources and most surveys, including the American Community Survey, don't ask about legal status. So we have very little information about these children and youth, and obviously that's problematic because they're at risk of being separated from their undocumented parents. And I guess the final important data gap I would mention is that we need more information about health um, of children below the national level. So I've mentioned the ACS is a great resource for socioeconomic data, but unfortunately it lacks detailed information about children's health. And there are very few national surveys that are large enough to give us reliable subnational estimates that are updated on an annual basis, which is, of course, very important um, for the Kids Count data book, which tracks the status of children and changes in their well-being from one year to the next. And of course, right now, this is especially concerning because with the proposed potential changes to health care, it's going to be very important for us to be able to track the impact of any of those changes on children's health um, in state and local areas. Well, thank you. Those are uh, certainly important uh, data gaps that we need to uh, do our best to, to see how much information we can get about them. I'd like to go back to the, the first that you mentioned around juvenile justice, which seems to relate to the ways that different state agencies collect data. And I'm sure this applies not just to juvenile justice systems, but probably also education or child welfare systems. Could you say a little about uh, the ways that we depend on uh, state and local agencies to gather data and what role, if any, the, the federal government might have in helping us get more uniform data across the states? Well, I think that's a, a really important question um, and, and a very challenging issue. Um, we are very fortunate in the U.S. to have surveys like the American Community Survey, which are designed, collected, um, and data are provided by the U.S. Census Bureau. So by definition, we have comparable questions and comparable collection procedures and tabulation procedures that ensure that those data are comparable. Um, but there are other areas such as the juvenile justice, which I described, where the collection of data is really more for what we would refer to as administrative purposes, and that's for carrying out policies and programs on the state and local level. So these are systems that have developed, in many cases, independently 
in states over many years. And a lot of those procedures and approaches are, are very, you know, institutionalized within different states. And so it's very hard um, for to, to provide incentives for this wide range of different state and, and local agencies um, to change what they're doing. And basically what it requires is resources. So a good example of the way this has been accomplished successfully is collection of information from birth and death certificates um, which are in fact collected and maintained individually within each of the states. But the states then compile their information and send it to the National Center for Health Statistics, which puts it all together then and provides us with important data that we use in the data book, such as um, the teen, you know, the teen pregnancy weight rate, uh, low birth weight babies, um, and child and, and teen death rates. But the way that we are able to get comparable data is that the National Center for Health Statistics has designed what they call a standard birth certificate and a standard death certificate. And once the states were able to adopt these, and again, it took resources provided by the federal government for them to be able to do this, then they were able to standardize. But I would say the, the big challenge has to do with the lack um, of adequate funding or incentive for all these different state and local partners um, to be able to standardize what they do. Great. At the Casey Foundation and in the Kids Count Data Book, we make it a priority to disaggregate data by race. And we've been hearing a lot over the last several years about the changing demographics in the U.S. Could you talk a bit about what you see in terms of the changing racial composition of children in the U.S. and what we might expect to happen over the next several decades? Well, of course, I guess the, the most basic fact and, and the place to start is that according to Census Bureau projections, um, by the year 2020, at least with their latest projections, 50% um, of all children less than 18 in the U.S. will be members of a racial and ethnic minority. So I, I think the important thing to understand is that um, children of color are the fastest growing group within the overall child population. Um, and there is no reason to expect that to change substantially in the future. And because historically, and, and it's been reflected in, in every data book thus far, um, children of color have lower levels of well-being in general and in particular with specific indicators than non-Hispanic white children. So the ability to disaggregate data by race and ethnicity is going to continue to be, if not become even more important than it's been in the past. And we obviously can't understand the challenges that children of color are facing if we can't disaggregate data. So we can't measure racial inequity and we can't monitor improvement over time if we don't have data that's disaggregated by race and ethnicity. Great. 
Um, so when we look at the data, we certainly see disparities uh, for our outcomes for children of color, but we also see differences in how different regions of the country are faring, that the South and the Southwest tend to have lower levels of child well-being than other parts of the country. Well, I guess the the simple observation is that, you know, where you live matters. So states in the South and Southwest have consistently been in the bottom quartile or amongst the bottom 10 states in the Kids Count Data Book overall index ranking. So that's looking across all four of the different domains um, from economic well-being to education to health to, to family and community. And I think the important context um, for answering this question is for listeners to understand that research has shown that child well-being is influenced not only by conditions within a specific household, but also by conditions in the neighborhood, in the schools, in the city, the county, and the state in which children live. And so it's that overall context, not just the measures of, of what's going on in a particular household that really influence overall child well-being. What do the data tell us about growing up in these areas? What we can tell from looking at these data over time for the South and Southwest is that the level of resources and state and local policies um, tend to result in children in these states having fewer resources than children in other states. And as a result, they tend to have lower levels of well-being in general across these domains. So if we look at parent and family resources that are available to children living in the South and Southwest, what we see is that in these states, there are relatively high rates of household heads who are high school dropouts and low rates of household heads who have a bachelor's degree or more. So there are fewer educational resources that are available among parents of children who live in these states. And then also median family income is much lower in the South and Southwest states. So there are fewer economic resources available within the household. But I also mentioned that neighborhoods and schools are important, not just what's going on in the household. So what we also find is that in, for example, Mississippi and New Mexico and Arizona, those three states have the largest share of children who are living in high poverty neighborhoods. And high poverty neighborhoods mean that there is concentrated disadvantage. So it's not only a child living in a household themselves that is below the poverty level, but that a large share of households within that child's community are living below poverty. Southern states also fall to the bottom of the list when it comes to education outcomes for children, according to the Kids Count Data Book rankings. Could you tell us what the data says about educating kids in the South? In terms of educational resources in the schools, per-pupil expenditures tend to be the lowest in the South and the Southwest. So they're in the bottom half of expenditures when we look at the country as a whole. And so we see these lack of resources in these states reflected um, in an important way in some key outcomes. So with respect to education, 
we see that the 10 states with the highest share of eighth graders who are not proficient in mathematics are in south or southwestern states. And there are also, these states have relatively large shares of fourth graders who are not proficient in reading. I think it's important to just round this out by observing that this concentration of fewer resources and worse outcomes in the South and Southwest is problematic because it creates a sort of uh, self-perpetuating cycle. So fewer resources and lower levels of well-being in childhood then tend to translate into fewer resources and lower well-being in adulthood, and then these patterns are passed on to the next generation. And so that's what we have seen going on for a number of years in the South and Southwest, why we see this consistent um, lower um, levels of well-being than we see in other states. So I guess I would just conclude that there's clearly room for improvement in, in terms of access to resources and levels of resources in the South and Southwest. And we know that investing in children and families makes a difference because we see the, that difference reflected in higher levels of well-being in the other states. Mm, thank you. So I, I have a question um, related to policy changes that are designed to help uh, improve outcomes. And it's a question about the timeliness of data. Often when we put out a data book, uh, we are looking at data that might be several years um, prior to the year of, um, of the data book. What can you tell us about um, the timeliness of data and uh, how it uh, could affect the policy solutions that we uh, seek to develop? Well, that's an excellent point, and I think it really underscores the importance of um, advocates and, and those with whom they're communicating paying attention to the data. But the timeliness of data is really key when you have large disruptions in terms of policy changes, for example, or such as occurred with the Great Recession back in um, 2007 to 2009. So the real key is having data that are collected on an annual basis, because that gives us the ability then, um, as researchers and as advocates, to assess the impact of what has happened. And of course, in some cases, you know, impacts are not going to show up in the next year. They may not show up for a year or two. So just because your data um, are, you know, only a year out or two years out, you know, from an event, I mean, it, it may take a while for, for impacts um, to show up. So I think it's important to always be paying attention to the lag between when certain policy changes have been implemented and when your data measurements are. But obviously, the closer in time we can get data collected to when um, events occur, the better off we are. And the American Community Survey is a wonderful example of the value and importance of the federal government collecting data um, in every county in the U.S. every single year. And in, you know, before we had the American Community Survey, we used to only have the long-form data that was collected 
once a decade with the decennial census. If that, if we had not had the American Community Survey fully implemented in 2006, um, and we'd only had data from the, 20, the 2000 census and the 2010 census, we wouldn't have had any information about what happened between 2007 and 2009. So we would have really missed the opportunity to look at the impact um, on children and families. And as I'm sure you know, the poverty rate among children jumped way up um, during the recession years and then started to come back down. But if you don't have data on an annual basis, you're going to miss those year-to-year -year changes. And you might make incorrect conclusions about how children are doing or what the status of well-being is among children and families. Hmm. Well, you uh, mentioned uh, the difference between what the ACS provides and uh, the decennial census, and we actually are uh, at this uh, time preparing for the 2020 census. Can you tell us a little about um, what the preparations are that are needed or any changes we're anticipating in the uh, 2020 census, and maybe even some of the challenges there are when it comes to trying to capture information about children and families? That's also a great question, Lisa. I think one of the most important challenges for the 2020 census is reversing the undercount of children, which has been documented um, to have been taking place for at least the last four censuses going back to 1980. So what we know or what research has shown is that children under age five are the ones who are most likely to be missed or not to be counted in the census. So, for example, in the 1980 census, research indicates that about 2% of children under five were missed in the census. But by the time we got to 2010, this figure jumped up to almost 5%. So we're missing 5% of children under age five. And the Census Bureau and, and others have been conducting research um, that shows in terms of trying to understand what are the characteristics of these children who are missed. And what they found is that the children who are missed are more likely to live in lower resource homes, meaning homes with you know, less income and lower levels of education among parents. And they're also more likely to live in households with complex family relationships. And so in particular, the children who are missed are more likely to be non-relatives of the household head or to be a relative other than a child. So they could be a niece or a nephew or, or, or a grandchild. And then also, of course, their children we know who, are, who split their time between multiple households. So they don't have just one usual residence. And they may spend a couple of days a week in grandma's house. They may spend some with mom. And they may spend you know, some with an aunt, depending on um, the adult's work schedules and availability. And those are children who are very likely to be missed. And this is important because, obviously, these are the children with lower levels of well-being, and so we don't want to be missing them. And I guess I would just say in, in terms of the current climate, there's also growing concern that undocumented immigrant families with children may be afraid to complete the census. And this could also lead to an increase in the undercount of some of the most vulnerable children that we have in the U.S. 
And then I guess finally I would just mention that one of the challenges we have every decade um, in the census, and it is no less true with the 2020 census, is measuring race. You know, race is really a social construct, and our concepts of race and the way that people identify their race and ethnicity is always changing. And so while changing census questions that capture race and ethnicity can improve the measurement and, and make it fit better with how people actually see themselves, it also can make it harder to make comparisons between racial and ethnic groups over time. Well, it certainly seems like important issues we need uh, to pay attention to. Um, the last question I have uh, relates to lots of uh, conversation in the media about uh, what's accurate and what's not accurate, um, what, is, what is fake news. I'm curious, given the work that you do around data, um, how could you help the average person trust the data that they're getting? Well, that is a tough one, Lisa, and that's a really important um, challenge. But I think the basic answer is that consumers need to know and evaluate the sources of data that they're seeing. So, for example, they need to determine if data are from a reputable government source. So that means that they need to look for specific citations for figures or graphs that they see in something that's in print or, or online. And equally important, they need to evaluate the organization that's providing the data. So is it a nonpartisan organization or is it an organization that has a particular well-known political point of view? And this is important because, of course, otherwise very accurate data can always be selectively chosen and presented out of context to further a uh, political viewpoint. And this, I think, is one of the things that makes the Kids Count data books so important. And that's the fact that it is a trusted known brand that's been around for more than 25 years. And in addition, the Casey Foundation's focus on database advocacy sets it apart from many other advocacy organizations and certainly from partisan organizations. So people can trust the data book because it's focused on reporting the numbers, whether they're going up or down. It's not just about good news or just about bad news. It's about the actual news. So I think in what we do at our work at PRB, we very much um, model what we're doing after what the Casey Foundation does with the Kids Count data book. And that is that we make every effort to document and provide citations for all of the data sources um, that we use so that people know exactly where a figure comes from. And we don't provide data or information without indicating what the source is. And we also provide links to that source so that the consumers who are reading something that we publish um, either online or in print can go directly to that source and they can double check what we've provided um, themselves if they need to. But I think that it requires, it requires more effort and 
part of what we do at PRB is try to help educate consumers about a number of these important data sources, like the American Community Survey, so that we try to spread the word about the data sources that are reliable um, and promote efforts by organizations such as the Casey Foundation to accurately and reliably provide data from these reputable government sources. Well, thank you so much, Linda, uh, for your partnership uh, and the partnership of PRB. You have certainly uh, been at the foundation of uh, ensuring that the Kids Camp Data Book is a, a powerful resource for those who care about the well-being of children in this country. And well, I want it's a very important and valued partnership for us as well. Well, we sure appreciate you joining us today, and I want to thank our listeners for joining as well. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, rate our show on Apple Podcasts to help others find us. You can also ask questions and leave us feedback on Twitter using the KCCast hashtag. To learn more about Casey and find notes for today's show, visit us online at aecf.org forward slash podcast and follow the Casey Foundation on Twitter at AECF News. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future. <laughs>